I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Hello, and welcome to episode eight of Talkin' Golf History, the show that brings the past into the present and tries to figure out what it might all mean for the future. I'm Rod Murray, and on today's episode, we're turning our attention to one of my favourite topics – golf courses and the evolution thereof. Many of you will already have read and heard interviews with Keith Keith Cutton in recent months since the release of his book, The Evolution of Golf Course Design, but it is such an impressive tome that there is still much to explore, and in particular from the history angle. We'll meet Keith in just a moment, but first, let me introduce my co-host, the always enthusiastic Connor Lewis. And Connor, why don't you start today by letting the listeners know how they can get in touch with us both by email and Twitter, and then we'll get to the good stuff and bring in Keith. You bet, Rod. Thank you so much. And I want to thank everybody out there in podcast land and all you golf historian lovers. I've been getting great great feedback from you on Twitter and Facebook, and thank you so much for following us. Uh, Email, you can reach us at history at talkinggolf.com. On Twitter, you can reach myself at at shistorians or Rod at, at rod underscore Maury. And, of course, we have the private Facebook page, the Society of Golf Historians. There you go. Off to you, Rod. Beautifully done. Well done. And thank you from me to all the people out there in podcast land as well. It has been fantastic to get all the feedback. I know we say it most episodes, but I continue to be surprised how much interest there is in this topic. So it's nice to know that people are listening. It was good to hear all of that. It's all so good to see we've had a few questions submitted already for Keith. So looking forward to putting those to him. That's probably enough of talking about Keith We really should talk to him, so let's do that now. Keith is a golf course architect based in Canada, though we find him, I think, in Canada this week, but he's on the move because it's springtime in that part of the world. Like so many in that field these days, he's a bit of a jack-of-all-trades whose business is in the design-build mold. But while Keith's knowledge of golf course architecture principles are as good as any, what we really want to talk to him about today is his remarkable book, The Evolution of golf course design. The book has received mostly rave reviews and as the owner of an autographed copy myself, I can attest to it being a thing of absolute beauty. Aesthetics aside, what it contains within its pages is a fascinating look at why golf courses are the way they are and why they have been the way they have been through history. Keith, the magic words history. Great to talk to you again and looking forward to today's chat. Thanks for taking some time. Right, Connor. Uh, thanks for having me literally the least we could do keith and we are always up for the least we can do here at the talking (laughs) history podcast first things first congratulations on the book have you been at all surprised by the response i think when we spoke on the ic golf podcast it would probably only just released first shipment maybe had arrived at the house and you know like all authors i guess you were a bit nervous about how it was going to go i got my copy after christmas i think there was a run before christmas uh, and that was fantastic how's it gone and have you been uh, pleased and or surprised with the response you've received uh i've been i've been blown away with the response that i've received from the book um you know we're um, i'm almost at 1200 books sold now and it's wow. um 
the the feedback's just been incredible. The people that have reached out to me uh, from the industry and outside the industry, just you know, people that might have got for gifts for Christmas and uh, colleagues that uh, I hold in quite high esteem um, that I now obviously consider peers, but people that I respected growing up and had voices, uh, strong voices that uh, are one of the major reasons why I'm in this industry um, that reached out to me and commended me on, on the efforts. So it's been, it's been quite something to take in and uh, a lot of motivation to keep uh, pushing to get the word out there. Mm, and happy enough to do it because I, I, do you own a copy, Connor? I think you do, even though Andy I do. pinched yeah. the last one that you <laughs> were going to buy. When you met Don't get you. me started on Andy Staples. You're dead to me, Andy. Shout I'm out to Andy. Good guy. Yeah. Uh, you own it. And, it is, uh, and history, I suppose, is your particular interest, Connor. So I suspect that unlike a lot of us who've bought the book, you're probably looking at it in a somewhat different way. I'm interested in design elements and things about design. And I know you are too. But it's that history yeah. element that probably has grabbed your interest as well, I suspect. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first of all, I love the book. Uh, if you don't have the book, get the book. Keith has a website. Keith, help me out with your website uh, where they can purchase the book. Uh, Cuttinggolf.com. Put that in the Perfect. show notes as well. Yep. And it is, I mean, it's fantastic from um, just the written word, which I enjoy, all the way up through uh, the artwork, the images, the photographs, the maps. Um, it tells a really thorough story of the you know history and design and evolution of the game uh, on the ground that we play it on, which I've always find found extremely interesting just because the golf courses are really the things that last, quote unquote, forever. Our great champions come and go and unfortunately pass away, though their feats may remain on paper, the golf courses live on and we all can enjoy them. So it's... I, I think it's an understated story in the history of the game of golf, uh, the field in which we play in, and the men mm-hmm. and women behind those designs. So it's also one of the unique and special things about golf, isn't it, Keith? That that us genuine choppers can walk in the footsteps of champions. You really can't do that in any other pursuit that I can. If you're into tennis, sorry, you're not getting onto Wimbledon. <laughs> It's just not going to happen, is it? Yeah. But yeah. As golfers, we can play the old course. And so the, the connections are much stronger, I suspect, between golfers and the history of the game in that sense. And I, I've, I've always looked at it, too, as coming from the design side. It's one of the few art forms that's truly interactive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, good point. You know, and, and it's, it's one of those things where, you know, as we're building it, we have to think of how people are going to interact with what we're doing Two years from now, twenty years from now, and hopefully, you know, if you're lucky enough, a hundred years from now. Yeah, indeed. I want to start by asking you, Keith, how far back do we go? How far back did you go when you had this idea, which probably seemed like a terrific idea at the time, and afterwards, when you'd given birth to the book, probably didn't seem like such a great idea as you were getting near the end of the process. <laughs> I'm sure, but way back when you first had the germ of an idea, how far back did you were you sort of thinking? Because Golf course design does not predate golf, does it? We have golf before we have golf course design. Yes. I mean, golf itself was really a um, natural evolution occurring in, you know, on the east coast of Scotland, on lanks, uh, on land ideally suited for it, lynx land, um, land that really wasn't used anything for anything else. It's part for maybe, maybe grazing uh, livestock and was really the – uh, the land between where the fishermen went out to uh, to fish and where the actual um, 
developments were um, the farm, the real farms, and the the towns. And uh, it 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 just started as this natural game, sort of a leisure time activity. As people began to get more leisure leisure time, as the middle class sort of evolved, and um, it's something that really didn't happen as a profession till later, till the railway really allowed golf to spread and become where professionals were able to take on the role of building courses to uh, expand their um, empires of golf ball manufacturing and equipment and lessons. Um, and the profession itself really didn't come up, came up, come about till much later. Who do we reckon that, well, there was a question about this, wasn't there on Twitter, Connor, which I'm madly yeah. trying to find on my computer system and I cannot find where I've put it about the relationship of old Tom Morris. I think it was Bill that asked us, Bill, the mm. Bill Williams was asking that he, he says, I think something along the lines of he's not a great golf course architecture uh, student, but everything seems to point back to old Tom Morris. Is, is that your take, Keith? Is he right about that? Very much so. I mean, um, you know, you could you could argue that Colt in the Heathlands really started the profession of golf architecture, the full time uh, job as an architect. But as far as the discipline and the some of the understanding of what uh, golf architecture was and the principles of it, really did start with with uh, old Tom. Um, and really, you only have to look at who he influenced. Um, you know, Charles Blair McDonald, Donald Ross, Albert Warren Tillinghast, um, Mackenzie, um, you know, the list goes on and on of those who ended up being major players in the evolution of golf course architecture later. He was sort of the father figure. He was the old man of golf, um, you know, the staple at St. Andrews, the home of golf, um, and really the, the, spot of influence uh saint andrews being the sort of um sort of the, the the big lesson on strategy and design and really it was natural it was um it was take you know it was evolved over time and sort of the, the finest holes came to the fore but um you know it was sort of just natural and there's quirkiness out there and there's things that as a designer you wouldn't typically do so the strategies were just sort of innate in that landscape and it's something that really inspired those that followed and you know tom didn't old tom didn't have the ability to shape the land the way his um those that followed him did he was really dictated by the landscapes and thankfully when you know he was sort of pioneering golf architecture he was in uh the birthplace of golf which just have to have so many different so uh, so many wonderful landscapes for golf and he was just the right mind in the right place at the right time to, uh, you know, start the ball rolling, get those layouts to at least functionally the routings and everything. Um, a lot of people, you know, you could argue that other architects came in after, especially with some of the effects of uh, the World Wars would have had, had on those projects. Um, they would have been uh, edited later, but uh, the, the bones were there and he clearly understood what strategy was, what routing was and how to get the most out of those properties. They probably didn't, didn't even have names at the time, Keith. Before I set Connor on you, I've got a question that's mm. going to be impossible to answer. I suppose <laughs> the records tell us that old Tom was the first. 
it's hard to think that people wouldn't have meddled in some way with the golf landscape prior, though, would they? Can we give them the the sort of the title of golf course designer? Yes. Is that is that and and do we know much about any of those things that might have happened before Old Tom? Sort of, all, he didn't properly formalise, but almost formalise the idea of a golf course designer. Yeah, no, he would have been the first to really get recognised as a. Um, a figure in the industry, somebody that was, in fact, internationally recognized um, as sort of the face of golf. And that had to do with his playing ability, uh, his role as a superintendent. And, I mean, he pioneered things in that industry as well, top dressing, uh, yeah. fertilizing. Um, you know, so he was, he was a man of all trades uh, and obviously, you know, quite smart and forward-thinking. But uh, to say that he's the first one that dabbled in design, that would just be foolish. Um, you know, before before that, it's, it's obvious that you know layouts like uh, Leith Links, uh, St Andrews, um, would have all had sort of a democratic process where those people playing it would have, you know, over time figured out where the best holes were, where the best angles to approach them, and accented certain hazards or features, um, you know, minimally, but, um, and let alone the fact that uh, nature herself, uh, would have changed these layouts over time. Um, you know, we, I'm, I'm heading, I'm heading to, uh, Cabot in a week and every year I go back, the bunkers look slightly different because of just the wind. Um, so, um, yeah, to say that he's the first would not be, would not be accurate. And it's one thing in history where you're, where you're, where you're talking about that, it's it's pretty important to sort of uh, state state those realities that you know we just can't know everything. No, indeed. What uh, what came before Connor? You cast an historian's eye over the evolution of golf course design. What are the things that jump into your mind that you want to grill Keith about? Yeah, I, I guess I thought I'd start with even way back before old Tom. Um, what do you, what do you think? golf course architecture or golf courses in general, Lynxland, were like in the early days. So before you had, you know, the Allen Robertsons and the old Toms, what kind of rugged experience would that have been in your mind? Uh, I think it would have been uh, one passage that I like to go back to is um, reading some of Mackenzie's work where he talks about um, some of the different types of grasses that were on those uh, the links and that it was um, it was just it was a very different experience the way the ball rolled that was firm and uh, just the ruggedness of it it was more of a, a sport more of a cross-country maybe adventure um, and something that I don't think I don't think people were there was no recollection of score it was purely a match play you know playing yeah. against somebody else um, activity and I think it was literally whoever won the last hole would pick the next spot to play to. And, you very know, whether sheep or not. Ranch, very right? sheep branches. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think there's just a purity to that of, and the ability to know a landscape and maybe figure out a hole that you think your competitor won't be good at and, you know, pick a, a different approach to a hole that may accent up, you know, your skill set um, just brings a whole other aspect to the game that I think is just wonderful. Looking back, you can see why it would have 
uh, caught on. And I mean, the difficulty with the implements and the feathery golf balls, um, it would have just been something that would have been just so rugged and pure. I think, you know, I think there's a reason we see people going back with playing with hickories and everything else now, trying Absolutely. to create something that's a little harder, a little bit yeah. more authentic. You know, I think about that, and I think about the history of the game. Um, the variety of golf was just mm. amazing in the early days. I mean, we had a five-hole Leith Links, 22 holes at one point at St. Andrews, eight yeah. holes at Musselburgh, uh, and then much later, of course, we have old Tom Morris's 12-hole Presswick. I guess it begs the question, not to go from history to today, but are we missing something today that they had that intuitively they got or something we could you know, look back to and say, doesn't even need to be nine. Let's, let's find the right course for this land. Is there a benefit to that? There's something we could learn from. Yeah. I, th- I think the biggest thing we, we miss when we look back at, you know, the number of holes at Leith's versus Musselboro, um, you know, we put a number that this is the exact routing and that these people would have somebody in the group behind them, pushing them forward and, you know, once they play those holes, they were done. You know, like we just talked about, the the ability back then, you could see them picking, well, let's play the three green from here. You know, the number of holes is really a factor of how creative you are. Um, yeah. When you're out there, I think there's a, a ability of that that we're missing in golf now with it just being a business. Um, and I understand why it is. Obviously, you know, um, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing if it wasn't a business. Um, but I think there's, there's just sort of that adventure and creativity from a player standpoint that's missing a bit. And I think that's where, uh, design build and some of the movements we're seeing in architecture are trying to restore that with options. You know, this is where we see the, the, the wits coming from and just the, the over the top, some you know, boldness of some of the new projects that are out there. It's just really trying to push those boundaries of breathing life back into this game right now. And it, yeah. that just wasn't there for years. You know, we restricted ourselves and made, you know, grew rough up and flattened fairways and greens in the name of speed. Um, negating all the elements that really made those original courses so unique. We sanitized you know, the, didn't we, Kate? These well, yeah. We, we sanitized I, it. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's just the, um, the sort of, putting a, you know, the modernization of golf and just putting sort of uh, the human touch and trying to control nature versus just accepting it and playing through it, which is really the the origins of what the game was. And, of course, so. just to, to, to leave history aside for a moment, what, what we find today is a, a culture of golfers who would not accept the sorts of conditions we would have seen in the time we're talking about and who wouldn't <laughs> necessarily recognize the game. Yeah as the sporty pursuit that it was then. A much more, I'm trying to think of the right word, masculine's not the right word, but it was a far more uh, brawny sort of game, wasn't it? That that match play over really rough ground was a much more a head-to-head sort of a sort of a competition, wasn't it, than, than, than what we most of us know golf as today. Oh, most definitely. Mm. And it's funny to think it was more of a, you know, brawny, rugged pursuit when you actually look at the old... Uh, you know, the oldest one things are paintings uh, and seeing what they actually wore. You know, they're just very well-dressed people out there. And, um, 
you know, playing a game that they're walking across basically um, sheepland. You know, mm-hmm. it's not going to be clean. They're not. It's not going to be uh, necessarily um, an easy walk, even. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just something that obviously there was just a creativity and something that just lured people in. I think that was just the purity of the landscape itself. You know, Rod, when I think about that, uh, specifically the very early days, it kind of rewinds back to our podcast on the rules of the game where um, the teen ground would be one club length from the hole and then it went to two club mm-hmm. lengths from the hole. I mean, just going back to the rugged nature of what the game was prior and those, you know, beat up greens because they were also a teen box or at one point the green was essentially six feet around wherever the hole was. There was that was the definition of the green. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I will always romanticize the impossible because we'll never go back there. But I think it's just amazing to look back at what was and what we have now. And I, and I think truly, I think there's a, a great opportunity to, to learn from where we've been. Maybe not that the green's only six feet wide or um, in diameter or that, you know, we could take the sand out of the bottom of the hole and we shouldn't have four and a quarter inch cups. But there's a lot to learn from how they played it and enjoyed the game versus just counting strokes. Those six feet greens, they'd suit Tiger Woods. No problem. He'd go okay. The rest (laughs) of us, we we might struggle a bit. As we start to see... Man interfering with the land to create golf, but you know, and I think we accept old Tom Morris is probably the first recorded sort of uh, person to do that sort of thing. How's that accepted, Keith? Do we know? Is that uh, just unilater- unilaterally believed to be a good thing, or was it somewhat controversial? One of the great things about golf is that we've got a media that goes with the game all the way back to those times. Golf's always had its own media and discussions and. Letters to the editor of golf magazines and those kinds of things. And there's, there's, as you know, Connor, there's rivers of gold in all of those sorts of communications. What sort of response does this get from golfers, this notion of men meddling with the land? Was it at all controversial? Um, in, in some instances when you've got a layout, and, and I mean, this, it, it's more retrospective when you're looking at um, sort of layouts that are sort of t- held the test of time that are then tinkered with later there's always those that um yeah. sort of nitpick what's going on you see that recently with um what happened with saint andrews um but you know the further you go back there's sort of the sort of this point where it's nature and you're bringing in somebody that's considered an expert um they would have been you have to look at cultural elements too um a lot of the time if somebody there, there might there there's there's often little rumblings about interfering with something that's just so pure, but if an expert's being brought in, generally it's accepted. Like if Tom Morris was being brought in, it was celebrated, you know, as far as if he was brought into Dornick or somewhere else to um, to make improvements to the golf course. And if Colt was coming somewhere, generally it was celebrated that the, uh, they were making that trip because it would bring notoriety and fame. Um, to that to that course and i mean we see we see similar things with marketing happening today you know the big names tend to get the jobs and it's celebrated and it's not till later generally that when people get to play and experience the course that you hear the uh the sort of feedback about it so um i don't i i think you know knowing history i don't i don't 
I don't think some things just don't change. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, I think so get, true. Yeah, the yeah, I think, uh, equipment the, the further you look back, you could, yeah, you could find somebody, especially when you get into the you know uh, the golden age of golf course design. When you've got um, the architects themselves, you know, leading the the major uh, editorials on golf architecture. Um, there's quite a lot of talk then about what others are doing and uh, sort of debating ideas back and forth, but it's still it's still very above the collar, you know, um, not really putting anybody down kind of talk. It's only when you get into some of the editorials where people are hiding their name. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, back and in there was that. Where, there was that, yeah. Exactly. You know, generally if people put their name to it, it was, it was quite... Uh, scholarly in the way they went about their their opinions. Um, it was only when you know somebody was willing to publish something under an alias, and then you got an editor that's willing to publish that that uh, you get sort of the, um, the the jabs in on on different people. The earliest but, form you know, of Twitter, Keith, <laughs> anonymity yeah, yeah, and what it exactly. breeds is abuse and, and the uh, trolls. brings out the, the trolls, dark yeah. underbelly, doesn't it? Yeah, it does indeed. Connor, yeah. as an historian. Rod, hey. Sorry. Yeah. I just want to ask you this. I was just going to say, yep. go ahead. No, no. Okay. You go first. I was just going to say, because I'm going to pick a fight with you because you keep saying that and I'm going to get mad. So I'm just going to jump in now. So <laughs> one of the examples of people not liking changes to the courses, to, just to give you that from a historical perspective, is um, old Tom Morris's uh, mentor, Alan Robertson, who was oh. an architect prior to old Tom Morris. So yeah. I defend Alan because I am... Uh, kind of a homer there. But um, I always say he's the godfather, or at least the grandfather, of strategic width. So when he widened the fairways, they were full of gorse back in the day, and he widened the fairways at Old Tom Moore, uh, of uh, St. Andrews, providing strategic options to the green and width, he was widely criticized by people pay, playing the feathery ball. Uh, they did not like it whatsoever. They did not like the idea that the course was made easier, which I think is amazing because now it's, um, you know, the course that we probably all look to when we talk about width. Mm. And then to flip that, he may also be the grandfather of penal design because he designed Carnoustie, mm. <laughs> which, which, is, which yeah. has given everybody a bear in the open yeah. championship, it seems. Yeah. It's a, it's a, well, and what do we hear now about clearing trees on yeah. courses, you know? We ha we have the same people saying the same thing. You're making the course easier. Um, you know, like I say, some things just don't change. But yeah, you far as far back as you go in architecture, um, you know, it, and that's what I said. If you're making changes on hollow ground, which you know the old yeah. course at that point still would have been, uh, there are going to be people that don't like it. There's people, you know, just in general, there's people that just don't like change. Yeah. Um, and I think that's quite good in a lot of reasons. I mean, we could have used maybe a little bit more of that following World War II. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, uh, that sort of, I guess, it has ebbs and flows just like everything else. It is what it is, as Tiger would say, Keith. It is what it is. Mm. Connor, as an historian, this is the question I was going to ask, and you kind of probably yeah. touched on it in a way, I suppose. How important has the importance of the course as and its relationship to the game changed over time do you think so we know that we've got discussion about golf courses going all the way back but but there was a time when keith just referenced post-world war ii where i suspect 
The course conceptually played a much less important role in the minds of golfers. It was just the place to play and what's important is the player as opposed to the course. The golden age, and again now I feel like we've got a discussion that's more the course is the most important thing. Do we see that in history? Can we pinpoint a time and say it was around here that people started to say, hey, the, the course is a really important factor in what makes this game terrific? Yeah, I would probably say it probably. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. And I'm not going to give you an exact answer. I'm not going to give you an exact day, but I will give you, I think golf course architecture, as far as the design and the importance of design, really starts to take shape. I would say, and Keith, feel free to jump in and correct me. There was a wide discourse on what was good design. I'd say that really started kicking off 1880s. I think Hutchinson made a, a mm. huge difference in oh, how massive. we viewed how we viewed golf courses and their design and he used the examples of obviously the old course was one of the the, the true fallbacks of and like we do today by the way um i i think that's where the discussion started you started to see around 1880 not much earlier but 1880 1890 1900 so much was being written about architecture and design whether it was straightforward and direct about architecture or it was talking about how to play the game specifically around the golf courses that we all value. And then I think as we got into, you know, as, as Keith mentioned, the golden age, um, not that there's, you could call it a renaissance of that kind of literature, but wow. I mean, it blows up. You have obviously Alistair McKenzie writing books and uh, all these great architects adding their value, uh, Thomas, and, and just adding, you know, their beliefs in design. And getting it out there where it just explodes. And, and, and I think as, as Keith, I'll let him take over here, but we did right after World War II. I, I, don't, I don't want to call it loss, but we were like, um, we were kind of, I don't want to call it the Dark Ages because it's not. But I think a lot of those lessons from before just were put on hold. And go ahead, Keith. Why don't you take it from there? Yeah, I think. The, I, I, other priorities took over, I think, is the better way to say it. Golf became a business. Um, TV had a major impact on how people saw the game. Match play was replaced with stroke play. And what they, you know, what everybody saw on TV as far as um, what golf was supposed to be, conditioning and everything. But going back to Horace Hutchinson, you're right. When, you know, in, in the early 1890s, when he, and 1890, when he, penned really the first article uh, that you know, anybody really wrote about golf architecture, um, you know, he sort of changed things for the first time. And the big contrast here is you had people like Alan Robinson, old Tom Morris, Tom Dunn, uh, Willie Park Jr., professionals, and Willie Park, you know, sort of separated himself and followed this culture um, yeah. of uh, more scholarly gentlemen but if you look at Hutchinson, what finally happened and the reason golf was able to change is intellectuals, people of privilege, finally came and saw golf architecture as a worthy hobby. These socialites who had numerous different you know, hobbies that they liked to indulge in, um, some of them who were avid golfers saw golf architecture as something to explore. And Hutchinson was one of these individuals that first started to, you know, put to paper his knowledge on what golf architecture was 
and how he saw, um, you know, different courses around Scotland and England. Um, and it just so happens that his associations with, um, you know, the Oxford and Cambridge Golfing Society had some really interesting friends. Um, yeah. You know, Lowe, John Lowe, Colt, Bernard Darwin, like the names, the list is incredibly influential for that era. And when you look at where these where these men practice, where they lived, um, and the need for golf in London, it's not surprising that their sort of uh, laboratory for this evolving understanding of what golf architecture was, uh, and lessons that really started with looking at what Tom Morris had done and looking at what his influences were at St. Andrews and really determining what strat what, what is strategy? Why are these holes interesting? And then bringing that to different landscapes for the populace of golf in London that really wanted to explore golf and not just doing cookie cutter courses uh, in the Victorian style to, you know, sell golf balls the way the other professionals were. But, you know, when you had uh, Sunningdale and Huntercombe open in, you know, 1902, you know, it really changed things. Um, yeah. And, and the, these writings were sort of, um, and you can see that Willie Park was paying attention. I put the note in there that there's a chapter in his book. Um, um, oh, what's his book called? Um, Come on, Connor. Golf is my game. Yeah. Uh, golf is my game or, uh, sorry, it's slipping my mind right now. Yeah. Um, I've got, I have the art, art of putting in my head right now. Which, yeah, of course, no, is the second book. So he's he's got um, – there's a chapter in um, – is it just the game of golf? Like, it's a simple right. title. It's just yeah, – yeah, the game of golf. Um, but he's got a chapter in this book near the end that's about laying out and maintaining links. And it's – the title of that chapter is almost a duplicate. And the, the, the talk and everything in it is very, very similar to the 1890s article by Hutchinson. And you could tell Willie Park is paying attention. And when you, when, you, when you thread these needles of influence and see that Hutchinson was just, a, you know, with his role at Country Life magazine, uh, British amateur champion, like he, he had this uh, influence of, in English golf um, that everybody just, you know, wanted to impress him and understand what he was talking about. Um, and he... He had friends that he pulled along with him, and that sort of uh, these intellectuals that really started to bat these ideas back and forth just um, spurred golf ahead to the point where, sadly, it was interrupted. This growth in England was interrupted by World War One, and you know we talk about it exploding in the U.S., but that wouldn't have happened without just the devastation of Britain. Because of World War One, people had no yeah. alternative but to come to to the U.S. You know, the the land of opportunity in the Roaring Twenties. Um, the reason the Golden Age happened there, um, and I think it would have anyway, but the reason it happened to the extent is because a lot of these practitioners that had started this, growing this knowledge prior to World War One, just exported it with themselves uh, over to the U.S. and Canada. Let me let me ask you a question. So Hutchinson is vital in this story. Um, is it fair to say he was he was heavily influenced by Old Tom Morris? Yes, I mean, uh, there's there's history showing that um, his 
his relationship with um, the old course at St. Andrews is yeah. quite lengthy. Um, I, get, I have a follow-up to that. So yeah. the follow-up is this. So what I think would be very interesting for the folks listening on the podcast, because um, I don't think a lot of people know this, maybe walk them through old Tom Morris laying out a course, because it's a little bit different than what you do, isn't it? <laughs> Just a t- oh, very, yeah. very, so very maybe, different. Maybe I mean, he would have shown. Let's, wait, wait, let's start with how you would lay out a course. So walk me through modern golf architecture 101, like the process for picking holes, maps, etc. And then we'll go to how old Tom did it. Cause it's fascinating, you know, that he has these amazing courses, but how they came about were, I mean, it's archaic, but kind of genius at the same point, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the talk about 18 stakes on a Sunday afternoon, mm-hmm. I mean, it, that still transcends back to uh, old Tom. I mean, he would have shown up for not a whole lot of time, uh, put some stakes in the ground, and, you know, told people how to, you know, give them instructions on how to do it. I mean, yeah. that differs where he, you know, like at Presswick, where he actually stayed there yes. and helped the course evolve. So the, putting, you know, putting him in that sort of sphere where that's all he did is, would be completely wrong. Absolutely. Um, and there, there are other instances where he did spend, um, like Dornick, multiple visits, multiple, you know, a lot more time on site. And obviously the, you know, the fruits of his labors show in the results. Um, as far as a modern architect goes, um, you know, I can only base that on, um, my experience with my mentor, Rod Whitman. Um, and this varies depending on what site we have too. I mean, uh, we haven't been privileged, um, like a core Crenshaw at sand, sand Hills to get, you know, thousands of acres to work with and have right. to figure out before you even get there was the best spot. I mean, generally nowadays you're given a smaller, you know, just enough land for a golf course. And your objective is to find, find the best 18 holes for that piece of ground. Um, so generally what we do is we try to get as much, uh, information as we can, as far as mapping goes, topographic, uh, information and, um, you know, wetlands, environmental constraints, anything you can layer sort of into that pre-site analysis to inform your decision-making later. And then, what I learned from Rod and what I've learned from Rod is just we usually make a four or five day visit at a minimum to yeah. a site and just walk around, you know, try to figure out how to, and I know Bill Coor does the same thing is what's the best walk on this property. Before you start thinking about holes and green sightings, you really need to figure out flow around a site and what are the key features on that landscape that you wish to highlight um, you know, the things that you want to approach from this angle and then come back to it because that this hill or valley or knoll or view or uh, creek or what, what have you, uh, you know, defines that area of the site. So how do you work with that? Um, you know, and what then strikes it just becomes me about a puzzle. That, what strikes me about that is, um, you know, you have all the technology in the world, right? Top, topo- topography. Uh, topographical maps, you have computers and, you know, you can generate almost anything. And yet it's very much the case when you're picking that, that routing, not unlike old Tom Morris, 
Exactly. You're you're walking the path. You're saying yeah. this connects to this. This feature's great. This has to be a whole, but how does it link into the next T box? And where's that next T box go? And you're feeling the flow of the land versus using all these technological innovations that we have today. That's amazing. Well, I mean, I just love that about architecture. Is it still comes well, back this, down to a, a good walk? Yeah, it is. It, and, I mean, that's that's golf. I mean, golf yeah. is a good walk. Um, it's you know, golf is great. Golf architecture has a sense of place. Um, you know, I I'm pretty good with a computer. I can walk circles around most people. Um, you know, I've had a, my own drafting design business. Um, stamp as a planner, masters in landscape architecture, like. I'm pretty good with a, with a computer. There's no computer that gives me the views. There's no computer that really relates the sense of place or specific uh, plant materials. You know, I, I don't yeah. get that. I don't get what that creek looks like from a contour plan. I don't get. Um, I can't. I can't see whether or not that green site is visible from where I want to put the tee without a lot of you know computer rendering and analysis programs. And then still, I mean, it's just a manufactured reality. It's not as good as being out there with your own set of legs walking around and using your eyes, ears, and, you know, understanding of what golf is to, to visualize. Um, yeah. And I think that's a lot of it, too. How do you visualize in, a, in, in CAD or in some sort of other program? It just it, it doesn't happen. The creativity is not there. And uh, as somebody that visualizes daily from the seat of an excavator or a bulldozer, um, you know, removing that ability and being stuck in a, a computer program just doesn't make sense to me. Mm, yeah. um, and often, oftentimes I have to relate this to clients when we're in meetings, um, you know, try to convince them on the one hand that I have the ability and the, uh, the computer capabilities if we need permitting and plans, uh, whether it be conservation authorities up here, you know, environmental um, regulations that we have to follow. I have the abilities with my background and computer knowledge to seamlessly go through that process. Yet, yeah. when we get into the field, I'm going to leave that process as loose as possible to have the most creativity. You know, I'm the reason you want to hire me is because I'm going to try to come out of that process with the most wiggle room so that we can allow for those decisions in the field to get the most out of the site. Right. Um, and it, it, it's, it's just, it's funny how golf following world war two became very much like landscape architecture and became a professional white collared discipline of people sitting in offices and, you know, and I respect some people that do golf architecture that way. Um, but I still say the best guys are the ones that are out on site all the time. Because um, it's the only way to do it. Just, just to open a quick rabbit hole here, Keith, and it, <clears throat> it only dawned on me while you were talking. What role does the golf cart perhaps play in that? When the when golf stops being a walking game, does it stop being a walking designing profession? I think we, this is probably particularly true <laughs> yeah. in America. Is there a correlation there, perhaps? If you're building golf courses for golf carts, and I've heard Bill Core talk about exactly what you were saying. Go and walk aside. Yeah. Where do you naturally walk? Where do the animals walk, is what he said. Exactly. How do Trails. they get from point yep. A to point B on this piece of land? That tells you something about the ways. When that stops being a part of the process, 
or does it stop being a part of the process because it's not going to be a part of the game? I wonder about that. There's probably no answer to that. I'll put you on the spot there, but it just came to me while you were well, talking. It's, Mechanization it's, really it, changed a lot of stuff, didn't it? Really changed a lot it, of stuff. It did. And I mean, the golf, cor- cor- the golf cart allowed for courses to be built that never would have been built without them. Very you know, true. these residential complexes that, you know, you have to drive for, you know, three or four minutes to get to the next tee. You never you know, walk it's 600 just, yards from a green to the next TD. No, you, would have you to lose people. Golf course. I'd, no, you'd, I'd rather walk back to the parking lot and go find another course. But <laughs> yes. when you're in a, I, I, when you're in a, I, I won't name the course, but I played a course last year um, in the state of Texas. This is close. I'm going to go where I finished this. I finished the 17th green, and it literally took me 20 minutes to find the 18th tee box. Wow. Like <laughs> I had to go. I literally walked all the way because I was walking. I walked all the way back to the middle of the 17th fairway to ask a member where I had to go. And I had to cross two streets and still walk another hundred yards to find the 18th tee box. Wow. It was insane. Sorry, I didn't mean to drag us down there, but that's maybe something to think about too, because that era after the war is fascinating, isn't it, Keith? I've heard you on Derek's feed the ball podcast twice. And almost every guest that goes on that podcast, at some point you come around to this topic of still trying to figure out, what happened? Golf really changed, or golf design really yeah. changed, didn't it? And it, there doesn't seem to be a silver bullet response as to why, but all of these little things are probably a part of it, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, all we're doing right now is really trying to unwrap clues. I don't think we're we're far enough into history to really make, you know, a determined analysis of what actually happened and what dictated everything. Because I still don't think we know right now where we're going to be in the next five, ten years. Um, and so much was going on that, you know, you can, you can really paint the bigger picture, but some of the finer details are still blurry. And I think that it's going to be like that for a while. And, um, you know, it's that, it's just the case with history. Um, right now, the clearest sort of era for us is the golden age of golf course design, because the amount of literature that was pumped out by these, by the practitioners, um, and critiques of each other and the, the history and the money that was there to actually put into the, this sort of collection of information as well. You got to look at the fact of the number of magazines and people covering and, you know, it was a wealthy age with a wealthy industry that was well covered. Um, you know, you, you go back earlier, things get a little murkier. There's multiple accounts that have opposing views that's another thing about history, and that's one thing that we find after the war as well, is that normally those that write the history are the ones that are doing well at it. You know, right. Robert Trent Jones wrote a lot of the history of what he was doing and put spins on his work and even, you know, took claim for work that wasn't his uh, to get ahead. <laughs> and if you go back and read just what he wrote, you don't get the full story. So. You know, there's probably other threads out there that are going to be uh, quite revealing, and I think this is one of the one of the things that's so exciting about right now, uh, with the number of people, you know, like Connor, uh, looking into this all this information, is that we're slowly unpacking it. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'm a firm believer, and one of the inspirations for this book was me trying to understand the history. Yeah. You know, it was never meant to be a book; it was meant to be my thesis. Is where this started with. And just trying to be the best golf, golf course architect that I can be. And how can I say I'm, I'm that without a proper understanding of the history of the discipline? 
And that, that really was the research to me where it started and it just snowballed. Let me so. ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. And I, I have a bunch of history questions, but this one actually, it leads right into what you just said. Um, so you, you wrote this book as your thesis or you wrote, you know, your thesis and it turned into a book. I guess you could look at it that way. Um, how does, how does writing this book change you? Like you probably had a, a rudimentary idea of what came before and you had to do a lot of research into what came prior is that fair to say and then how does that how does that change you as an architect like how do you look at things possibly different what did you learn from this that that you might influence your design today i mean thankfully i found out that i was on the you know um well i don't want to see the right side of history but i mean if you look at things right now with where design build stands I was lucky to end up on that side of the business. That's just I'm my outs, outlook on design. I've always been a hands-on type of person. I didn't want to be in an office. I, I didn't like that when I was doing planning or landscape architecture, or engineering, or drafting in the past. Stuck in front of a computer, so that was never me. But um, knowing that the attention to detail and the men, the the mentor protege process, something that I have so very strongly in my life and thank Rod Whitman for, you know, going on 12 years now of, of mentorship and the associations he's brought me with Dave Axlin, Bill Coor, uh, you know, some of the best mentors I could have ever asked for, uh, Jeff Minge. Um, you know, it's been, it's been an incredible journey and learning process of how to build golf. And you couple that with knowing history and understanding where we are with golf architecture right now, the industry is very much a renovation game, a renovation business. And, you know, I'm in Fredericton, New Brunswick right now, uh, and we're doing redoing four greens at the Fredericton Golf Club, which is one of the oldest courses in, you know, it's probably the, in the top 25 oldest courses in Canada. Um, and... You need to know the history. You need to know, you be able to educate the membership on, okay, where do we want to take this? What, what, what was the high point of this history and how can we access that history? And where are we right now? What elements are in conflict with, you know, the way this course should be represented, represented? And, you know, having that understanding is hugely influential. We've, we've got, Projects in Ontario at Brantford Golf and Country Club, which is the fourth oldest club in North America right now. Uh, the history there dates back to like one of the earliest projects with Stanley Thompson and George Cumming and his and Stanley's brother, Nickel Thompson. Um, you know, knowing the eras of these courses and how they've evolved over time is pretty important right. to explain to a membership, you know, what happened and what maybe the high points of design were for that site. You know, we've got this beautiful old creek that goes through uh, Brantford, and there's a there's ponds right next to it that were purely added in the 60s just because that was the thing that was happening. It was, you know, Robert Trent Jones influenced. Um, you know, all your par threes had to play over water. And that's having impacts on drainage. And then you get into the whole functionality of the golf course, and a lot of the times, these old golf courses were very functional. And you have these debates about history and 
um, a sort of vision for the club. And I mean, this book is just, I never thought it would do this, but it's just, it's put me in a spot where I just feel so much more comfortable going to membership saying, you know, this is your history. And this is, this is what I believe is the best thing to go forward that makes this property distinctive and, and gives you a sort of a whole package history landscape and, uh, that is, is marketable. And in the end of the day, that's, 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 that's important. So, um, let me, yeah, let me ask. Yeah. I was going to ask you now I'm going to rewind here a little bit. So we had go, uh, old Tom Morris. So I'm, I'm speaking specifically to your profession now. So we have old Tom Morris, um, you know, the original, uh, let's just say he popularized golf course architecture. I think that'd be fair rather than invented it. Um, yes. And I, I believe you said Colt uh, changed the way golf course architecture as a profession was handled. Is that fair that he was, in your mind, like the first one to professionalize it? Is that where you were going with that? Yes. In my mind, he would be the first one that I would call a professional golf course architect. Walk and I don't know much about Colt. I need to learn more about Colt. Teach me a little bit about Colt right now. How did he go about doing that? How did he change or perhaps start it as a profession? What did he do that put us on the path where we are today? Well, I mean, you know, you could argue that uh, in North America, Charles Blair McDonald uh, was one of the first with, with Chicago to be employed uh, and do a design. Same thing with the, you know, old Tom, Tom Dunn. Sure. Um, I don't Dunn. actually. Like, I don't. These, I don't know if CB ever took money, so I, I don't know thing. if he was truly ever employed, right? And and that's exactly the point I was about to make. Um, a lot of these individuals didn't do it as a profession. Yeah. Um, and old Tom, Tom Dunn. A lot of them were doing it to either uh, because they were employed as a superintendent slash professional. And to sell golf clubs and balls and lessons and everything yeah. else. That's yeah. the major. You know, they took pennies for laying out a course. They really weren't building the course. Somebody did that. They they got a, a you know Tom Dun or Tom Morris would get a small fee for laying out the golf course. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't his profession. You know, anybody would argue that he was a professional golfer and yeah. the head of. Um, St. Andrew's grounds. So the first professional, really the first one that um, did golf architecture, made plans and drawings in the way that really we, you know, if you look at Donald Ross and the, the drawings that he did, they are very similar to the drawings he saw at Old Elm when he worked there for Colt. Right. And Colt was hugely influential. You look at the Heathlands of England and then his sort of mentorship of Hugh Allison and Alistair McKenzie, who then went to uh, Australia. You know, then Colt uh, uh, came to North America and was, you know, influential at uh, Pine Valley and then came to Canada and laid out Toronto Golf Club and Hamilton Golf and Country Club, influencing a young Stanley Thompson. You know, the guy almost single-handedly um, – influenced touched almost everybody that was influential in the golden age of golf course design yeah um you know he really was a epic figure so if i if as as a golfer um i love playing you know old school golden age design i love 
every age. I mean, I, I love Musabra, and it's from the gutty age, really. Um, what Colt designs are on the must play? Best maintained to what his vision was, what are the must plays anywhere? I mean, if that's in the United States, if it's in Canada, if it's in, uh, uh, you know, the UK, I am, tell me where I need to go. Or our listeners, where do they need to go? Because I don't think enough people know about Colt. What could they see? Um, well, if you're Canadian, uh, Toronto and Hamilton, um, if you, I mean, Toronto is just as personally, that was so hugely influential to me, um, being lucky enough to, you know, sort of visit there several times over the last, you know, 10 years, uh, and actually having a friend that, uh, worked there under Martin Hawtrey for, uh, the renovation of the short course and really getting to get out there several times. It's just an incredible piece of ground. Um, and the other thing that was, you know, talking just about my personal influence, um, I, I did an exchange in my undergrad over to uh, uh, Oxford and studied there for almost three months uh, in a program that was really aimed at um, city planning, but understanding the British uh, framework versus what I've been studying, which is the Canadian. And one of the big influencers of doing this exchange was the fact that we only had uh, three or four days of class a week. Every weekend I was traveling and being so ideally situated there in Oxford, um, you know, Swinley Forest, St. George's Hill, um, you know, just these unbelievable uh, cult layouts that just blew my mind uh, as far as just their their distinctive look being, you know, sort of Heath, Heathland courses and the quality of the, the golf holes and just 18 impeccable holes that if you picked any one of them up and put them on any other golf course, it'd be the best hole. Yeah. Um, they're just incredible. And uh, I had the, uh, I had a friend that was working at uh, Chicago golf club um, uh, two or three years ago. And I had the privilege of going down and visit with him and getting up to old Elm. And if you're in the U S that would be one, you know, the combination Absolutely. of uh, old, you know, the combination of Colt there, with uh, Donald Ross actually being the construction of foreman for him on that project. Uh, what a you know, he did the plans and left, but it is, yeah, it's just, you know, and that, that pairing, that, that uh, relationship there as well is hugely inf- influential for golf architecture. So, the, um, oh. you know, there's numerous others, but those are the ones off the top of my head that are just um, quite exceptional. Um, you know, the, the Eden course at St. Andrews, um, you know, there's just, there's a lot, to, there's a lot out there and it is, unfortunately a lot of it's private. Yeah. You know? Um, the, even over in the, um, in, in Britain, it's just the quality of his layouts and the location of them next to sort of bigger cities have sort of dictated the fact that they've gone the way of the private membership, the private club. So, um, uh, you know, for your average person, I think that's why he's not more well known is, you know, the, just the exclusivity of his, of his work. Let me, let me go into, let's move into the United States. So, Hmm. um, you know, we have St. Andrews golf club, uh, 1888 here in the United States is kind of the first formal country club. Uh, there were some perhaps earlier courses in the United States, but 
I guess this is always, I've always had this question out there. The early golf courses, a lot of them were designed by uh, Scottish and English immigrants. I'm trying to see if I can say this. (laughs) Um, A lot of them weren't very good. They were not great designs. And and I talk about a little on Twitter um, of uh, ground level bunkers with vertical faces. That was a big trend in the United States. bunkers. Yeah, they just stick out of the ground three feet, and they are. But your bunker is level. I mean, it is level with the turf that you play off. It rolls in, and then you have to go over this obstacle. the The bastion bunkers at Shinnecock were a great example of a snake like yeah. bunker. I think it was on the eighth hole. Can't be a hundred percent sure. Uh, eighteen ninety four through like eighteen ninety six. Um, so, what really changes that? Uh, in my mind, I think there's two things, really. I think the, the Haskell ball, uh, 1899 to 1903, drives all this need for new golf design. But I thought, rather than go down the technology uh, uh, bucket or uh, rabbit hole, because I will live there, um, let's talk about National Golf Links of America and what it meant to golf in the United States. When oh, you go it was, there. Uh, it's one of my... One of my awakening moments was seeing that property for the first time. Um, you know, again, it's it's a shame that that property is so exclusive. Um, yeah. What a treat that would be to the public if it was, you know, more like a Pinehurst that people could get there and see that. I mean, the scale and the grandeur and um, just the the variety, the 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 bunkering, the green complexes. You know, the, the scale is. Like I just said, is absolutely un, unworldly. But it uh, for the first time, um, so you you had this. What what you're talking about with the crop bunkers is really Victorian design, and that was what a lot of the golden age practitioners referred to as the dark ages of golf architecture. People that didn't understand how to replicate what they saw at you know on the links courses in Scotland. And then really there was nobody that was building, could build golf courses. It had evolved, but they couldn't replicate it. They didn't have the equipment or the manpower uh, or the understanding of how to do it. And Victorian design was so prevalent um, throughout um, the United Kingdom at that point that a lot of the the gardens for the ultra-rich, the parks, anything that was sort of granted scale like a golf course that wasn't a golf course was Victorian in nature, very geometric. And that transcended into golf um, with that style of architecture. And, you know, it didn't matter that the people building courses in the U.S. or Canada, for that matter, were from Scotland. They were still employing that understanding of construction methods, the Victorian uh, aesthetic that they had seen over there, um, yeah. and if you see early or early links courses, there are actually some fo- a lot, quite a few photos of those those courses with square greens. And if it's not a natural bunker, there's Victorian elements on a lot of links courses that were, you know, we don't see them as there because they were replaced later, as I said, by other hands that then went back in. A lot of the times, either doing renovations or repair work because of uh, the wars. Um, now, coming to North America, you know, you had this evolution of golf architecture in the UK, like we talked about the Heathland, Colt, um, Willie Park Jr., you know, just 
unbelievable names that would then export that knowledge elsewhere. The combination between a natural aesthetic and strategy, um, you know, pioneered on the discipline, the idea of strategy um, with John Lowe and at walking and the understanding of what the old course meant and why those holes were so good. You had somebody else in North America, C.B. McDonald, doing the same thing, looking to Scotland, looking at golf in North America. He had studied over in St. Andrews and knew the quality of golf there. Um, I mean, he played golf with old Tom Morris. He, yeah. he was mentored by old Tom. He knew golf. And he, he was there in North America, and he was asked to build uh, golf in Chicago. And he knew his first efforts were pretty poor yeah. because, again, yeah. he, could, he couldn't replicate what he had seen. And so what did he do? He put the effort in, went over, and did a full-on survey and asked people, reputable people that knew, and asked them what, the, the, what, what are the best holes and what are the key features that make those holes great, and did drawings and, and surveys. And he was aided by numerous people, including uh, uh, Devro Emmett in this, yeah. and then comes back to um, North America looks around and finds the site on Long Island and builds arguably a golf course that changed the fabric of golf architecture in America, um, you know, forever. Yeah, I, so. I always get back to that, that when he came up with the idea, he wrote about uh, designing the ideal golf course based on mm -hmm. now what we call template holes. They weren't called templates back then, but the ideal golf holes. And there was a large percentage of people that mocked the idea yeah i mean yeah. they i mean openly even his peers were like this is awful you cannot duplicate uh the redan uh at north barrack it cannot be done uh you cannot replicate the alps at prestwick it cannot be done i mean mocked and well, what and he you, gave you, us yeah go ahead and and you can see why they were thinking well you don't have this inherent landscape you're not going to be able to replicate everything that's here there. Um, but what he did is, you know, he found ground for holes that was just so perfect for it and used features of it. I mean, if you play, you could play C.B. McDonald's, Seth Rayner courses, and Charles Bank courses, and you will see different variations. It's not the same Absolutely. holes. It's, yeah. not a, it's, not a, it's not a cookie cutter um, re recreation of what's there. It's using angles understanding of strategy, bunker strategy, placement, right. you know, to use the innate terrain that they're given and put those elements to it to bring it to life. And yeah. that becomes the template. And that's what he understood. It's don't try to recreate the whole, understand the strategies that make that whole work. I'm glad you say that because I get into it with folks, perhaps that haven't played a lot of CB or Seth Rayner courses and I try to explain to them that he's not recreating the same hole. I, I think a great example of that is the reverse Redan at Sleepy Hollow, which is this mm. drop-off shot, almost to hit the green, you almost have to miss the green to have it funnel down, versus National Golf Links of America, or even more so, the ge geometrical design of Chicago Golf Club with its squared-off yes. green. All of them are different, but yet the strategic elements of those holes are, are consistent. He is playing to whatever the geography is giving him or the topography, right? And yep. using the strategic elements to recreate the strategy. And, and I, 
National Golf Links of America, bar none, I, I don't know if there's too much to argument, changes the game. I mean, yes. he's, he's pulled into Shinnecock and he redoes Shinnecock. Now, not all of that exists today, but no. um, and, and all of a sudden, Chicago Golf Club has to wait another 15 years until Seth Rayner gets to touch it up, right? Um, yes. And to the Chicago Golf Club we know today. But I, I, I think it's a fascinating spring point in golf in America um, and how we look at design that took us out of the Victorian era and into modern strategy. Would you agree with that? Yeah, he was, he's kind of the only one that didn't follow the Heathland um, sort of mentorship protege thing that was happening with Colt and Hutchison. He did his own thing. I mean, obviously he knew what was going on. He wasn't completely removed from the scene. Um, but he really did something, and I, I equate it in the book to, we look at landscape architecture now, and a lot of, there's, there's sort of this subculture, just very close to golf architecture, that people are trying to get out in the field more and not just do what they did on their last project and really understand the site and the people they're working with to you know, create something unique. And it's called evidence-based design. And yeah. it's, not, it's, it's, it's knowing the elements and the history and everything that goes into that spot that makes it unique. And, I mean, he really did that when he went over to Scotland uh, and England and understood these great holes and what, what the key features were that made them exceptional. And I don't know a single architect today worth their salt that doesn't do the same thing. You know, there's no... People that, you know, I have a master's in landscape architecture. I didn't learn golf architecture there. Um, It gave me the opportunity to study architecture, but I learned it under the, you know, at the foot of Rod Whitman and Bill Coor and Dave Axlin. And the first thing they tell you is go see golf courses and see as many as you can. See good ones, see bad ones. And what am I? What what's the point? You're tr- what you're doing is making a m- huge mental database yeah. of cor- courses and holes you've seen, so that when you get a piece of ground, you go, "Oh, that would look neat there." You're yeah. remembering angles, remember strategies. You're you're using evidence based design. You're doing exactly what McDonald did, but he was the first to do it. He was the first to do it effectively, and made it a career out of just using that single sort of group of uh, strategies. Um, to make it golf courses. And I'm going to ask you one more question, and then we're going to go into viewer questions. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, we are very blessed that Donald Ross was with us for a long time, and we have probably more designs than I can count. But some of our greatest architects shined only for a brief moment. Alistair McKenzie comes to mind. Charles Blair McDonald retired very early. And Seth Rayner, unfortunately, died kind of in his peak. Um, how robbed were we of these great art golf course architects? Some would say three of the Mount Rushmore of architects that could go up on, on, on a shrine. I mean, what, what did we miss out on? Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, you, you could theoreticize about that forever. I mean, what would Seth Rayner have done with Cypress oh, if he had been great. able to do that? That's the age-old I mean, question. <laughs> yeah, I mean... You know, Fisher Island of the West. Um, oh, 
I mean, I have the, I, I, have the same I heard that you, I heard that you had the original plans for Cypress in your collection from Seth Rayner. I, that's a joke. A drawing, that's a joke. It, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a drawing that um, it looks to be his routing, um, whether it doesn't have his name on it. Sure, um, I've I've put it on social media, and I mean it created a little bit of a wave as far as you know who did this and where is it from. Um, yeah. I'd love to see I, that. I, I, yeah, that, do um, it again. Tweet that again. Yeah, if I'll, you have can. To, I'll have to tweet that again. It's one of I'll my jump favorite, all over it. especially because it's a, it's an oblique sort of bird's eye view. Of the, it's just a beautiful plan. Um, it's one of those that just struck me as that's art, you know, and wanting yeah, to do yeah. wanting to do golf art that looks, you know, more than just a uh, you know you're just cookie cutter stuff. But um, you know, there's people like uh, Langford and Moreau, and even even to an extent like Perry Maxwell. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, you look at his career; it's like you know, exceptional designer around for quite a long time, but just. Where he lived, and then the eras he lived oh, through. Oh, the era, yeah, yeah. Killed I mean, us. And that, killed yeah, us. it's so important. I mean, understanding the economy of why he wasn't more, um, you know, um, did, didn't do more work is 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 yeah. very very important. Um, so yeah, there's 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 numerous names that I think you know, whether it be lifespan or economy of design, that you know, I think we were robbed a little bit, but. Um, and there's, there's probably names out there of, you know, Devereaux Emmett's another one of, Absolutely. uh, you know, work on Long Island, somebody that, you know, when I saw Garden City and, you know, even that was changed, there's some very unique designs or, you know, he was doing things like a very short par three followed by a par six, you know, just yeah. the con, the contrast in, you know, we talk about variety, you know, and, you know, we point to McKenzie as one of the you know, the big people to talk about that. Well, they were doing it before. I mean, you're talking Garden Cities, you know, early 1900s. Like, it's really important to know what these guys were doing and sort of who was pushing the boundaries and when. And it's it's sad that some of these people's work isn't uh, isn't uh, isn't around anymore because it's just it was deemed too unique or too quirky. And you know, what would we think of it today? I don't know. Well, Rod, do you want to jump in? Indeed, so it's uh, well, it's impossible to say, isn't it, Keith? That's the that's the way these things work. We've got some really interesting listener questions, mm. Keith, that I want to come to because th- they might take a bit of time to okay. respond. So we've got a million of our own, but uh, part of what we're trying to do is invite other people in. I'm going to run through. You've kind of answered this one. This is Bill Williams's second question, and uh, I think you've answered sort of half of this. I take more than a passing interest in course design, yet I never see anything about Harry Colt or James Braid. So you touched on Colt. Both arguably up yeah. there with the best designers in history. Just some very quick thoughts on Braid. I know you've already touched on Colton. Uh, there's probably a whole podcast oh. in that, but uh, some thoughts on James Braid. Oh, Braid is another one of those individuals that just doesn't get enough credit. Um, and a, a lot of that because of, you know, the era in which he was prolific was really following the wars. In you know, he didn't he he wasn't one that liked travel. He didn't like to go on ships. He got sick. Um, so he really based a lot of his work um, where he lived, uh, you know, in and around uh, um, London, England. And, you know, a lot of the, the courses, uh, you know, he, he was the resident head professional at Walton Heath for like I don't know, 50 years. Um, you know, he, I think he started there shortly after 1900 and he died in 1950. So it was close to 50 years. And a lot of the work he did 
was um, restorative in nature. He would go into um, Royal Aberdeen, you know, some of these uh, clubs uh, that were heavily damaged by the war, you know, and but then you've got some of his courses that are sort of just so unique, like Brora, that are so pure and intact. Um, you know, and then you've got courses like Glen Eagles that are so been sort of so modernized. Um, it's just it's hard to pin pin him down because he was he was a person that if he went in somewhere wouldn't just change things for the sake of putting his stamp on it. Um, he was quite delicate with some of the re, uh, restoration work that he did, and it doesn't get a whole lot of attention, yeah. sadly. Well put. Well put, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Delicate. Uh, I like nice that. Yeah, put it, put yeah. it in underrated. Here's a really interesting one from Team Big Mitts. Uh, obviously knows his <laughs> stuff. It's a, it's, a hell of a, it's a hell of a Twitter handle, isn't it? At uh, No, it's at Mitts Big, but he calls himself Team Big Mitts. Banks left his job as a teacher to build some of Rainer's best designs, many Ooh. posthumously. I've always viewed him as one of GCA's greatest unappreciated tragedies. His own designs had wildly dramatic versions of the templates. What would he have become had he lived longer? We'll talk about impossible questions, Keith. There's one for you there, but maybe just some thoughts on Banks and, and, and what might have been, I suppose. They're always the hardest questions, aren't they? What might have been? Yeah, I mean, Rayner died in 26. 25, 26, yeah. 26, January and, something, 1926. Yeah. And I mean, Banks died in like 31. So the gap between where he was actually went from, you know, protege to the guy in charge uh, was pretty fast. And um, four, four years, he had about four years before the Great Depression, right? Hits in 29. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you could just tell that um, I think he's one of these like, you know, everybody talks about Willie Park Jr. kind of working himself to death. Um, you wonder if the same sort of thing happened, the sort of the weight of getting his mentor's portfolio dumped into his lap um, and trying to finish certain things and losing some incredible commissions like Cyprus to others oh. um, would have, you know, that would have weighed on him. And, um, you know, he was one of those, you know, nicknamed Steam Shovel. The quality of his work, um, you know, Noel, uh, West Hampton, Essex, uh, Tamarack, like there's, there's, there's several that he did out, you know, later that were just exceptional works, uh, bold, deep bonkers, you know, really deep bonkers. Um, and, but using the same sort of methodology, uh, of the template holes that he was imparted by his mentors. And one thing about those courses, you know, you're on a Rainer or Banks course. The temp, the the strategies always hold true. They always fit the landscape. They're always fun. You know, they've got that quirkiness to them, uh, that uniqueness. Um, yeah, it would have been something if he'd done more. Um, I mentioned him in the book. He doesn't get his own profile per se because of the. Um, you know, just like Langford and Moreau, there's just not the the breadth of portfolio and the impact on the actual evolution of golf architecture that other people have because of their you know endurance in the in the industry and impact on others. But uh, yeah, he's somebody that uh, would have been interesting to see where he would have gone and how he might have evolved even. 
uh, as an artist, yeah, if given the yeah. opportunity. To, to echo that, I had the pleasurable opportunity to play West Hampton last year. And yes, template holes, but man, I mean, on a fairly flat piece of ground, one of the most interesting courses I played last year because yeah. of the depth and breadth of those bunkers and shaping is spectacular. It's just, it's a, it's a piece of art is what it is. You're golfing on art. That's about well, it, as, it, it, as prizes you can get, isn't it? As an architect. <laughs> okay. Well, it is. The, 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 the holes are just so memorable, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it, it, and maybe it's something where, you know, it's interesting. You, you look forward to seeing the Redan. You look forward. What are they going to do with it this time? Yeah, you know, or or there's, there's, the world the world needs more par three punch bowls. I mean, exactly, it just yeah, has to happen. Unbelievable yeah. hole. Yeah, I mean, there's and yeah, I mean, there's just a uniqueness about you know the Levin's one of my favorite templates. Like I look forward to seeing that on any uh, yeah. Rainer McDonald Banks course that I can get to. What what course spin? And am I am I going to notice it right away? Half the time, you know. Uh, it's not fully obvious to me till you get yes. on the green and look back at what what some of the especially on the first time around because I you know you know obviously the more well known ones I've studied um, but some of the lesser ones I just try to go in blind because I want to be shocked um, there's the, you know there's there's that original point of discovery you know I can see why Tom Dope tours the world to see golf courses why he's trying to make a multiple book series about it as to justify his need to go see courses. It is addictive when you get onto some of these properties and um, especially when you get a quality designer that just can knock your head back every once in a while. Fantastic. Great question. Thank you for that team. Big bits from Andy Herzog uh, at AR Herzog. I've often heard that Tilly and others ruined in quotes, some courses during the Mm. depression by advising clubs to take out expensive to maintain features. How much is known about that? Are there any examples of well-known courses that were affected and what great clubs were lost? We might not be able to answer all of those, but the Tilly Tour no, I mean, during the Depression, Keith, a little bit of background on that and what that was about. Yeah, I know, I, I'm know. i not a Tilly expert. I know a little bit about it. Um, he definitely went around and, on the you know, you're talking about the Great Depression, some very hard yeah. times. And... <clears throat> almost doing a service as opposed to greens committees figuring out what bunkers to fill in and destroying a course. Uh, I think certain architects took it upon themselves. You know, they can be judged at any light you see. And yeah. some people are looking at it negative, but you, you have to understand the realities of the time. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a huge factor in this. And he, yeah, he did. He went, uh, he went around advising courses on which bunkers to fill in and he wasn't the only one av mccann did the same yeah. thing with his clubs um you know there was the, the i'm sure there's other names that i'm forgetting right now but it was fairly commonplace to go around and uh as opposed to having your work destroyed by uh well-intended members and clubs uh just trying to stay open keep the doors open yeah um, it was something that these people did just as a service to, um, cause you have to understand is it wasn't just the great depression. It was the contrast of the age before it, mm-hmm. the roaring twenties had that title f- for a reason. Mm-hmm. There yeah. was, there was so much money, uh, being thrown around at these clubs, the scale of it, the labor that was able to maintain these courses. 
um, I did an interesting study at uh, Shinnecock and, you know, this wasn't one of the courses that they went in and advised changing, but just naturally, if you look at an old aerial from, you know, even 1930, I think is one of the earliest ones I have. Um, if you look 10 years later, the course is completely different. The bunkering, just yeah. the scale is less than 50%. Um, and that might be an exaggeration. It might be 60, 70, but it's dramatic. And it's just a necessity of the time. You know, it wasn't, he wasn't doing anything to hurt golf. It was just, he was trying to keep well, the opposite in fact, wasn't keep it? the industry open. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think you could argue, and I think he was hired by the PGA to I do think that. It was I'm not hundred percent sure. PGA sponsored initiative. I'm pretty sure. But yeah. my argument to that, first of all, always judge a man by his times. Right. Yes. And those were dark and desperate times. If, if he doesn't do that, there's an argument to be said that maybe those courses don't survive today for the restorations that we've enjoyed in modern times. They exactly. might have closed their doors. Yep. So it's tragic, I suppose, if you look at under the glimpse that it looks like he's ruining courses. I'm sure it hurt him very much and cut him deeply that he was taking out these beautiful designs and, and making these courses more common. On the other hand, some of those courses might have survived due to those changes. And we've been fortunate enough to be, live in better times and restore those courses to the gems they are today. Couldn't agree more. Well said. Well said. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, and, you know, just throwing this in, uh, down another alley, I mean, I'm much more inclined to respect somebody that does things for economic reasons to keep the doors open on a club mm -hmm. as yep. opposed to, you know, the, the constant battle we're fighting now about tweaking courses for equipment advancements. I think that that's a... You know, that's a whole different ball game of, um, you know, something that we're, you know, when's this, when's this battle gonna, gonna stop? How many times are we gonna change courses in the name of, uh, in the name of, uh, you know, technology and advancement? But did why, why did you bring that up with Rod? I know. Why did you bring that up with Rod? What are you doing, Keith? I sent you a list of do not talk. You don't bring that up around that him. Noise you can hear is me pushing the lid back onto that can of words. We don't have the time. <laughs> You're going to ask that last question, I yes. hope. Uh, I just okay. tried to bait him. <laughs> oh, no. Wrong. Wrong. Uh, so last Go question. Ahead, I think Rod, you, my... yeah, sorry, Connor. Did you have something just before we get to this one? No, no. Okay. I was so excited about this next question because I have an answer. Okay, so fantastic. Let, we'll let it. Keith go first. I think this is probably the of best course. question we've been asked, Keith. And this is from uh, B. Hoover. M U B Hoover M U at B Hoover underscore N E O H. I'm not sure who B Hoover is, but this is a genius question, Keith. Yeah. Which figure in golf architecture history is most comparable to Judge Smiles? <laughs> I have a very solid answer on this one. <laughs> you By can have way, a think B. about Hoover it, Keith, and Connor can have his turn, maybe. Come on, Connor. Yeah, B Hoover, huge fan of the podcast. Uh, I think. Good guy. So, uh, gr like. So sort of a uptight. I think we're going to have the same like, answer. I'd have to say like, it would have to be like McDonald or who else is, I mean, McDonald was just known to be a complete, you know, curmudgeon. Um, what do you yeah, if I have to name somebody, that's what, He's going uh, with interesting McDonald. question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You want my my answer yeah. is dead on. Yeah. It's CB McDonald. Oh yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I think there's only one answer Probably. there, and I, unfortunately, the 
CB McDonald uh, Society is probably going to send me some nice emails, but God love you. <laughs> I do love you. And I love CB McDonald, but you know, he's the only guy who can lose the U.S. Amateur twice and be our first U.S. Amateur winner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll get into that with the USGA when we meet with him. But um, he, he was, I mean, listen, a, a genius. I'll give him that. He was definitely an egotist. He was also quite very much a bully. Um, he ostracized people. Um, he was almost, I believe he was alienated from the course that he built national golf links of America, like his final years there. He was not welcome. Um, he is very much smells. Connor, if if you thought (laughs) you were going to get emails for the smallest comparison, wait till you get emails about what you've just said there, my friend. I Uh, I don't think anything I said is unfair. I think I could back it. I know I could back it up. I'm willing to back it up. We might do that uh, on a future episode. There's a million more things we could talk to you about. We may get you back at some point, I suspect. Have to uh, have him back. To have to have him back. We'll get some more questions from the listeners. I really enjoy the listener questions because I often have – they think about things completely differently to what I do and what Connor does, and that's one of the joys of, of the medium. But it has been fantastic to catch up with you again. This is my second time chatting to you. It was at least as interesting as the first, perhaps a little bit more. Can't thank you enough for taking some time. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, guys. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, we do. And I'll put it, I will put a, show, a, a note in the show notes, a link, so that people can go and buy the book, which is well worth it. Connor, it's always a joy to catch up with you and uh, appreciate you organising all this with Keith and uh, and keep on pushing, keeping on pushing these episodes of the History Podcast. It's been fantastic and really enjoyed chatting with you, possibly for the last time once the CB McDonald Society gets hold of you. That'll be soon. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I, I just hope they let me at National Golf Links again. This could be, <laughs> oh, no. you know this what? Could be terrible. I'm not, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not even, uh, National Golf Links, I hold them to the highest credit. And by the way, that information I received on CB McDonald may or may not have come from folks at National <laughs> Golf Links. So I'm just yeah. saying that. Well, it, and honestly, the reason that name jumped into my head is um, when I was there, um, I don't know how old this man must have been. Like, I, I was there, first time I was there was a maintenance Monday, and I walked around for 10 hours. Um, had the whole place to myself apart from the maintenance crew. It was incredible. Just, you know, zigzagging everywhere, walking holes backwards, forwards, every which way. And I get to the clubhouse, which is closed, and this elderly gentleman comes up to me, and he claims to have been a caddy way back in the day and had held the bag for CB. And I started doing the math in my head. Yeah, I started doing the math in my head of whether or not this was could even be true. Uh, and I, I'm still not convinced it is, <laughs> but he starts telling me stories of, um, just, you know, like I said, he, the word he used was curmudgeon and just this angry temper tantrum throwing big, big man that, uh, you know, if he wasn't playing well, you know, everybody knew it. He, uh, so when he did that, that, that judge small's question was just hilarious. Yeah. It's yeah. a good so. one. B Hooper. Yeah, good on you. Yeah. Well done. He's asked the <laughs> yeah. be- it's taken us eight episodes to get a truly great question, and it didn't come from either of us. Kind of, so. <laughs> either one of us, right? <laughs> we must be in um, curveball. The wrong business. I'll, I'll give uh, my two cents on the finish here. Um, we do have a new podcast coming out. It's a little uh, unusual one. It's one where I've written, narrated, um, and researched. Uh, it's going to be called The Champion Who Lost His Mind. Uh, it's going to be an unusual one. We'll see how the, it's, it's received. It's going to be called um what are we calling the series uh um 
Golf from the fringe. I think you called golf, it golf from, from the, the fringe. fringe. All I've got to do golf is get it edited, Connor, and then we can put it up. I know. It's, it's we're waiting on Rod. So if you want a tiny complain. task, of course, <laughs> just put it on the pile of. I will get to it hopefully in this. And then for week. you folks who are also still listening, if you haven't stopped listening to the podcast, uh, you'll also see me on the Golf Channel in the upcoming weeks for the PGA Championship, doing a history piece on the lost legendary golf course of Lido with Jim Urbina where we ah, talk yes. about this the influence of Charles Blair McDonald and the eighth wonder of the world is what I call uh, Lido. And it's what? It survived between two wars. It was designed in 14 and died in 42. It's an so extraordinary story. It should be a fascinating piece. Yeah. Yeah. Extraordinary story. So, yes, yeah, so well done on that. I'm looking forward to I don't think we'll be able to see it here in Australia, Connor, but I'm sure you'll be able to get a bootleg copy of it. I'll send it to you. So that you can yeah, send, I'll send it, it to me. That would be yeah, fantastic. Thank you for your time today, Connor. Fantastic. Thank you, Keith. Yeah, and thank you. Yeah, thanks, Connor. Episode eight, Talking Golf History is history. We've done it. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Hope you've enjoyed doing the listening as much as we've enjoyed doing the talking. We will be back to do it all again in two weeks' time with Talking Golf History episode nine, and hopefully in between from the fringe, Connor's fantastic narrative uh, about the champion who lost his mind. In the meantime, we'll look forward to your company next time here on Talking Golf History. <laughs>